Chapter 13 of Hester, A Story of Contemporary Life by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Erickson, Toronto. Chapter 13, Catherine's Opinion. It is not to be supposed that Harry's visits, which made so much commotion at the Vernonry, could have entirely escaped the keen observation of the Grange. Catherine Vernon shared, with most sovereigns and the ruling class in general, a peculiarity, not indeed a very unusual one, of liking to know everything that went on within her sphere. It was not as gossip, nor, she would have said with some reason, from curiosity alone. She had for so long been all-powerful, and sure that the means were in her hand to help those that wanted help, and to regulate affairs in general for the benefit of the world that it had become a necessity, almost a duty on her part, to keep herself informed of everything that went on. When an individual feels capable of performing the part of a visible providence, it becomes incumbent upon that person, so far as possible, to know everything, to shut his eyes to no detail, to note every little incident, and to encourage not only the confidences of his possible clients and protégés, but the observations of all surrounding them and every hint as to their motives, their intentions and purposes, that can be got at. The outside crowd, knowing nothing of the meaning of these investigations, is apt to mistake them altogether, but Catherine did not care much about the outside world. It was her wish that everything should be told to her, and she was perhaps too apt to think that those who were not willing or able to open their hearts were people who had secrets in their life, and probably a good deal that would not bear the light. She liked her friends to bring her news, and never thought anything too trivial to be added to the mass of information which was in her hands. She knew the habits of her neighbours, and the good and evil fortune that befell them better sometimes than they did themselves. Parents who were doubtful about the proceedings of their sons, had they asked Catherine, would have known all about them. So the prince, in a little state, may often interest himself graciously about the affairs of his subjects, and monarchs are the best of genealogists, knowing who married who all the world over, even outside of the Almanac de Gotha. It is not a taste which can be indulged without falling into an occasional appearance of pettiness, but yet there is a great deal to be said for this degree of interest in our fellow creatures, and there is no way in which it can be kept up so well as in a country town where everybody knows everybody else. This is perhaps rather an elaborate preface to introduce the simple fact that Catherine Vernon from the very beginning had known of Harry's visit to the Vernonry. Her own woman, Meredith, by name, shared her mistress's task, without Catherine's fine reason for it, and carried it deeper than Catherine, not refusing any garbage of the lanes to satisfy her appetite. And she was a woman who saw everything and knew everybody. It was no more than Harry's second or third visit when she pointed him out to her mistress, walking past in his summer morning suit, which the long evenings permitted a young man to retain while daylight lasted and he could be about. Harry was very carefully got up. He wore light clothes and ties of the most interesting description. He had always the stick which was in fashion, the hat of the moment, and a very pleasant sight he was striding along in the summer evening, going where love carried him with honest intentions and a simple heart. 
He was not, perhaps, capable of a very refined or poetical sentiment. He had at that time no doubt whatever that Hester would accept him gratefully, not so much for himself, in which point he had an instinctive humility, but for the good things he could give her. The glamour and the thousand little enchantments of love were not in him, but he was honest and true, as Hester had said. He meant this poor girl, whom most people in Catherine's drawing-room and elsewhere pass by without notice, though some thought her pretty. He meant her, as his wife, to be a happy and much-honoured woman. And what was more, he meant to be good to his mother-in-law. He might have been a romantic paladin, or a man of genius, and not have been so excellent, so worthy of all admiration as that. It never occurred to Harry to go another way, to conceal what he was about from prying eyes. He was not ashamed of what he was about. All the world might watch his steps so far as he cared, and it must have required a distinct effort on the part of any honest heart not to like the sight of him as he went to wooing and wish him a happy ending. Perhaps it would be too much to say that Catherine made that effort, but she was not favourable to Harry as to his cousin, who was under her own roof. It is scarcely possible for any eyes but those of a parent, and even the eyes of a parent are not always impartial, to look upon two young candidates for favour with exactly the same sentiments. If it is too much to say that one will be loved and the other hated, at least the balance will be unequal. Edward had found means from the beginning to please his patroness and relative. He had been, is not this the grand reason? So good. He had been ready at her service when she wanted him. He had been ready at her service when she wanted him. He had stayed at home. He had been son and daughter to the lonely woman. All that she knew of him was excellent, and she had no reason to imagine there was anything to know which was not equally good. Catherine was one of the people who say that they do not look for gratitude. If Edward had not appreciated the kindness which picked him up, as it were, from the roadside, she would have laughed. She would not have shown either surprise or pain, but the fact that he did feel her kindness and devote himself to her touched her deeply. She was as well off as if he had been her son, far better off than many mothers with sons. But Harry was very different. For a long time she had made up her mind that Harry was her great failure. He and his sister had never attempted to attach themselves to Catherine. They had considered their elevation to the White House and the honours of the bank as owing to their own merits, and had set up a sort of heir-apparent establishment always in opposition. With the natural instinct of a woman, she had concluded it all to be Ellen's fault, but Harry had not the good sense to separate himself from his sister, or even to imply that he did not support her in her proceedings. Far from that, he stood by her with the utmost loyalty. Though he never was anything but deferential, and respectful in his dull way to his benefactress. He never would allow it to be supposed that he did not approve of his sister and back her up. If Catherine saw the merit of this faithfulness, it was in a grudging way, and as a matter of fact, she did not like Harry. There was nothing in reality to find fault with in him. He was very steady at his business, notwithstanding the rival claims of cricket in summer and football in winter. And when he was asked to dinner at the Grange, he was as punctual as clockwork, with an expansive shirt front that would have been a credit to any man. But he did not please Catherine. 
He had given her a reproof which stung on that occasion when he took down Mrs. John, without waiting to know what person of importance should have gone before. Nothing that could have been said would have stung Catherine so much as that good-natured act, and it was all the more hard upon her that in her heart, always a good and generous one, she approved Harry. It was a reproach to her, and still more, it was a reproach to Edward, who had never taken the slightest notice of Mrs. John's presence, but left her among the neglected ones. Catherine had been doubly angry with Harry ever since that evening. She would not allow even that he was a handsome fellow. He is big enough, she would say, resenting the fact that he was a head taller than Edward and twice as strong. He is a fine animal, if you like, but I don't see how a man with white eyelashes can be considered handsome. Edward did not oppose his aunt in this any more than in other things. I allow, he would say, that he is not clever. But he shook his head as one who would deprecate a too true accusation when Miss Vernon held Harry up to ridicule. No, he is not clever. He will never set the Thames on fire, Edward said. Miss Vernon saw Harry pass the third time he went to the Vernonry, and afterwards she looked for him regularly. Who is it for? she asked with an ardent feminine appreciation of the only motive which could induce a man to hurry over his dinner and get to the Vernonry in time for the humble community's tea. This was a question not very hard to answer, seeing that the next moment she added to herself, Who else could it be? It could not be Matilda or Martha, who are neither young nor fair. It was very unlikely to be Mrs. Reginald, though she was young enough and not without beauty. But Harry is not the man to burden himself with a lot of children, said Catherine, with an unnecessary scoff at the poor fellow, who was not her favourite. Thus there was only one person whom it could be. It gave her a sort of pang of amusement when she concluded upon this. Hester, that proud, troublesome creature, she who would never give in, who put on the airs of a princess in the Grange drawing-room, and declined to go to supper, she with the spirit of a revolutionary, and the temper of a demon, no, no, this was perhaps too bad, the temper of a Vernon, Catherine said to herself with a laugh, she to fall to the lot of Harry. This was so strangely funny, so paradoxical, so out of character, that it amused Catherine altogether beyond description, yet gave her a strange blow. What a ridiculous combination! If the world had been ransacked for two who ought not to come together, these two would be that pair. What would they do with each other? How could they ever pull together? the one all eagerness and vigour, the other stolid and heavy. Catherine was almost tempted to be sorry for the girl, but the next moment she laughed again. Oh, it was easy to understand. Mrs. John must have managed it all. She would see in it a way of recovering all her lost glories, of getting back her footing in that ridiculous white house, which had been adapted to her silly taste from the beginning. Oh, no doubt it was her doing. She would talk the girl over, she would persuade her into it, with a host of pretty maxims preaching down a daughter's heart. And it was with a gleam of vindictive amusement that Catherine assured herself that Mrs. John would find herself mistaken. After she had made the marriage, she would be left in the lurch. Harry was not a man to put up with a mother-in-law. Thus Catherine Vernon, though she was a clever woman, misconceived and misunderstood them all. But yet it did give her a natural pang, that girl, who compelled her attention somehow, though she had no favour for her, 
who inspired her with a certain respect, notwithstanding the consistent opposition to herself which Hester had always shown, to think of that ambitious creature, all fire and life, being quenched in the dullness of Harry, put out in the heavy tranquillity of his athletic existence, to score at cricket matches and spend long, wearisome days out in the sun, watching for the runs he got. But then she would be well off, would have the White House and all sorts of good things. Oh, no occasion to be sorry for her. She would get her compensation. And then Catherine thought, with a jealous displeasure, what she felt angry with herself for entertaining, of the arrangements which Harry's marriage would make necessary. Up to this time he had more or less held his position at her pleasure, but she had no reason, she was aware, to refuse to satisfy all her engagements and make him actually independent, as he had been virtually for a long time back. She would not have the slightest excuse for doing it. Everything had gone on perfectly well. There were no complaints of him at the bank. The business flourished and made progress. But the thought that Hester would be thus immediately placed on a sort of equality with herself, and Mrs. John reinstated, vexed her. It was a mean sentiment, but she could not help it. It vexed her in spite of herself. The news had been, it is scarcely necessary to say, communicated to Edward at a very early stage. Miss Vernon had called him to her after dinner as soon as he came upstairs to the drawing-room, to the window from which the road was visible, winding along the side of the common to the vernonry. "'Do you see that?' she said, pointing his cousin out. "'What?' he saw the common, lying in all its sweetness, its roughness and undulations standing out in the level sunset rays, every bush casting a shadow. He was young, and he had at least a scientific love of nature, and longed to be out poking into those beds of herbage, feeling the fresh air on his face. And it was with a secret grudge in his heart that he realized the difference between the light, strong figure moving along, buoyant with life and liberty, and he himself in his evening clothes in his aunt's drawing-room, seeing it all from within four walls. What, he said, thinking that he would rather not see the fair outdoor evening world since he could have no share in it. Why, is it Harry? And then he felt that he hated the fellow, who was his own master. He is going a-wooing, Miss Vernon said. She was sitting in her favorite place, which commanded this prospect, the common, the vernonry, the tall pine trees, and the red bars of the sunset behind. The sunset was her favorite entertainment, and in summer she always sat here. Edward stood behind, looking out over her head. She did not see the grimace with which he heard these words, and he did not reply for some time. It gave him a shock more sharp even than that with which Catherine herself had heard it first, though to be sure there was no reason why. Ah, he said indifferently, who can he find to woo about here? but he knew very well in his heart what the answer would be. Only one person, so far as I can make out. It must be that girl of Mrs. John's. I suppose she is what you call pretty, though she has never been a favorite of mine. But you can't confine prettiness to your favorites, Aunt Catherine, said Edward with a sharp smile, which he had sometimes. No, that's true. I deserve that you should hit that blot. She is pretty, I know. Poor Harry, he will have his hands full, what with the mild mother and the wild daughter. I wonder at the girl, though. She is an ambitious, energetic thing, and poor dear Harry will never set the Thames on fire, as you say. Did I say it? 
No, I don't think he will. But he has solid qualities. Very solid. The White House and his share in the bank. Oh, there will be an equivalent. And to think that little schemer, that soft little woman who looks as if she could not harm a fly, should have managed to secure herself in this cunning way and get her daughter back to the point she started from. Who would have thought it? There is nothing so astute as simplicity. Edward made no reply, and this was a thing Miss Vernon did not like. She required a response. Silence felt like disapproval, and as there was a strong, silent protest in her heart against everything that was mean or petty in what she said, she was apt to resent this want of acquiescence all the more. She looked back at him when he did not expect it, and was startled to see a look she had never seen before, a look that astonished her on his face. It was something like a snarl of contempt and despite, but it disappeared in a moment, and she could not believe her eyes. "'Are you so sure that Hester will marry him?' was all that Edward said. "'Marry him? Why, how could he have so much as looked that way without encouragement? To be sure she will marry him. Where could she find anyone else who had so much to offer? The girl is not a fool. Besides, her mother would not let her if she wished it. And of course she would not wish it, an ambitious girl to whom her present situation is intolerable. Don't you remember her look on the Thursdays which we both remarked?' Edward had remarked it, not exactly in the same way as Catherine had done. Esther's look had made him ashamed of himself, but he had not had the strength to go and display himself by her side as Harry had done. It made him furious to think of Harry standing there by her in the corner, not caring what their patroness might think. It was a courage of which he was not capable. "'Don't you think,' he said softly, "'that we are going too fast, Aunt Catherine, in every way?' Harry's visit may be a chance one. There may be no purpose at all in it, or it may have some other purpose. He was there last night, and on last Saturday and Wednesday, and I don't know how many evenings besides. Oh, no, there can be no doubt on the subject. It will be a great amusement for the Vernonry. The dear old ladies want something to amuse them. This was said of the Ridgeways and Mr. Mildmay, who were all younger than Catherine, and one of them a man but that fact increased the pleasantry all the more. The curious thing was that through all this, Catherine was aware that what she was saying was unworthy of her, and in reality was disgusted with herself and kept a mental reckoning of all the meannesses of which she had been guilty. There were first her remarks upon Mrs. John, which indeed might be true enough, but which she ought not to have made, and her certainty that scheming and encouragement must have been used to entrap Harry, and that Hester would marry him for an equivalent. No moralist would have noted these faults more clearly than she did herself, yet somehow she went on with them all the same. But it vexed and annoyed her to find Edward so constrained. He said, Will you come and have a turn in the garden? But not in his usual tone. That turn in the garden had been doubly pleasant to her because he had made it appear that it was pleasant to him too. I think not tonight, she said. There is a new moon. It is a lovely evening, said he. I think you ought to go, the sunset on one side and that clear pale shining in the east on the other make such a beautiful contrast. Come, Aunt Catherine, it will do you good. You think it will blow the ill-natured thoughts out of my head, she said with a laugh. Have you ill-natured thoughts? I was not aware of it, said Edward, 
And then as she did not move, he added, If you will not come, I think I must go and give a little attention to some papers I brought home with me. I had not time to look at them during the day. What papers? she said quickly. Oh, only some prospectuses and details about investments, he said with a careless air, and left her to her great surprise. He had been in the habit of telling her of any work he had, all about it, and of sitting with her for an hour or two at least. Catherine was surprised, but as is natural in a first shock of this kind, having got over the momentary prick of it, assured herself that it was accidental and meant nothing, yet was a little more vexed with that girl and with Harry, because in some way their concerns had brought about this little, little break, this momentary lapse in the continuance. She could not any longer amuse herself with the prospect of the vernonry and the little excitement of this dawning story. There were a great many pricks about the story altogether, sentiments and sensations of which, when left alone and without the support of any moral backer-up, of Meredith's stimulating disclosures, or Edward's assent, she felt ashamed. It was wrong to speak as she had done about the astuteness of Mrs. John's simplicity, why should not the mother wish to place her child in the position which she, after all, by no fault of her own, poor creature, had lost? Catherine escaped from the tingling of shame at her own pettiness, which had gone through her, by considering the final arrangements which she would have to make in view of Harry's marriage. Practically, she was always magnanimous. She would have scorned a petty cutting off, a restraint of liberality, a condition to her gifts. Her givings were always large, and if her mind was warped by the sense of benefactions unappreciated, or kindness unprized, of reaping envy and resentment where she should have got gratitude and love, was it not the fault of her pensioners more than her own? The fault of human nature, which she had been forced to believe she saw through, and which, in order not to break her heart over it, she was obliged to laugh at and despise? It would have given Catherine Vernon a sharper shock still if she had seen into Edward's mind as he went away from her, bitterly feeling that while other men could taste the sweetness of freedom and of love, he was attached to an old woman's apron strings, and had to keep her company and do her pleasure instead of taking the good of his youth like the rest. It was a sudden crisis of this bitterness which had made it impossible for him to bear the yoke which he usually carried so patiently and which she, deceived in this instance, believed to be pleasant to him, the natural impulse of a tranquil and home-loving disposition. Had she known how he regarded it, how violently he suppressed and subdued himself, the shock would have been a terrible one, for she was slow to put faith in those around her, and she clung to the one who had been able to impress her with a sense of trustworthiness, with a double tenacity. Edward breathed more freely when he got out of that drawing-room where he always seemed so entirely at home. The library in which he sat when he was alone was a little less oppressive in so far that he was alone in it, but the recollection of Harry going lightly along in his freedom, going a-wooing, had raised a ferment in the breast of the other which it was very difficult to quiet down. Since the morning when he had made her acquaintance first, Esther had been an interest to the self-sufficing young man. Perhaps it was only a little warmer than the interest he felt in his botany, in a new specimen, but it had continued through all those years. 
when he spoke that little aside to her at the party, with his eyebrows and shoulders in a suppressed and confidential attitude, which placed himself and her in the same category of compelled assistance at a lugubrious merrymaking, where neither of them got on, he felt her in her poor little muslin frock and her high indignation to be far the most interesting person in the room, and he resented the necessity which made it impossible to him as the official host to separate himself from the more important people and show the opinion he had of her. Here again the disabilities of his good fortune weighed upon Edward. He was the host. He was the first person there next to Catherine, her representative, the master of all her wealth. Harry was not of any authority in the house, so he could do as he pleased and earn the gratitude of Hester. But Edward could neither go to her side in her corner nor set out of a lovely evening in his pleasantest clothes to woo her as a free man might. He was not sure that he wanted to woo her any more than as a fine specimen, but he could not bear the impudence of the other fellow who thought himself good enough to go after her, and whom Catherine thought so sure to win. Edward could not contemplate with any self-possession the idea that Harry might win. It made him angry. It made him furious. It made him for the moment too much a natural man, too sincere and real to be capable of his usual self-suppression. Harry would have an equal share with himself of the bank. They were equal there in power and authority, and in the profits they drew. Why then was it that Harry should be his own master and Edward the slave of an old woman? This was the utterance of his passion, of the sincerity which was forced upon him by the enticements of the summer night. The freedom in the air and the sight of all the privileges which Harry exercised so easily, without knowing they were privileges at all. No doubt the fellow thought himself good enough for Hester, perhaps believed that she would jump at him, and was encouraging him, and ready to accept his proffered hand as soon as ever he should hold it out. This thought made Edward's blood boil, and the confinement of the Grange became so oppressive to him that he did not know how to bear it. He indemnified himself by plunging into the midst of the bundle of papers which he had not chosen to describe to Catherine. In these papers lay far more excitement than all Harry's privileges had yet supplied. A battery of artillery planted in front of this peaceful grange, with all its matches alight, would scarcely have been more full of danger. There was enough in the packet to tear the house up by its roots, and send its walls flying in a whirlwind of ashes and ruin. Edward sat down to examine it as another man might have flown to brandy or laudanum. Dreams were in it of sudden successes, of fortunes achieved in a moment, castles in the air more dazzling than ever rose in a fairy tale. He revenged himself on his bonds, on the superior happiness of his rival, on Catherine above all, the unconscious cause of his imprisonment by this. Here was enough, already and in his hands, to ruin them all. End of chapter 13